I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Wood Talk. Now here are three guys who might stop by to ask for a cup of slab. Mark, Shannon, and Matt. All right, it's Wood Talk, show number 485 for September 23rd, 2020. On today's show, we're doing another Q&A show, cleaning out the old inbox. It's a little bit dirty in there, a little dusty, some cobwebs, but we're going to pull out some fresh questions and try to answer them here. Uh, But before we get to that, I want to let you know that Wood Talk is brought to you by Rockler. Rockler's been... excuse me, helping customers create with confidence for over 65 years, head over to rockler.com and check out their upgrade your shop sale, which includes shop upgrades ranging from jigs to clamps to power tools. The sale runs from August 28th to October 1st. So don't miss it. And when you're done upgrading your shop, you should come over and help support the show. (laughs) Good idea. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash woodtalk and signing up to become a patron of the show. Uh, this week, we'd like to thank Jason Mann, Robert W., best last name ever, Joseph Becker, and Matt Noble. <laughs> that one's easy to pronounce. <laughs> oh, very good. All right, so we are going to get right into the good stuff with the questions, and we're going to start with a, a voicemail here from one Greg Walway. Hey, guys. Greg Walway from beautiful central Nebraska. Quick question here. I've seen videos of people throwing um, lumber in a microwave to pull out the moisture. What do you guys think of that? Does it work? Is it a waste of time? Or is it a big old trick of YouTube? Let me know what you think. Love the show. Love your work. Thanks, guys. All right, microwaving I think is 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 valid. It just gets a little soggy and doesn't taste the same though, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so I usually prefer yeah. the oven. Yeah, make sure all the nails are out of the wood too. You don't want that. Oh, <laughs> yeah. No, no ferrous <laughs> objects in there at the same time. You'll know real quick. Radio frequency drying is essentially this. If you buy um I mean, vacuum kilns are a big thing, but a lot of vacuum kilns combine um RF vacuum kilns. So you're you're bombarding the wood with 
waves, right? Whether they are microwaves or longer, slower radio waves. And what that's doing is exciting the molecules inside the wood and essentially heating it up. And that's what a microwave does. It pretty much, that's why you get that, that wonderful kind of super like lava hot center <laughs> in that, in that hot pocket. Um, that, because like, it's cold bit right next to it, right, right next to it is the cold <laughs> bit. So, um, that, that's, what's happening. The, the, the waves are, are penetrating into the wood and essentially flashing off the moisture from the inside. The issue is it's very difficult to control, which is why you get that frozen bit of ham and cheese <laughs> next to the molten bit of ham and cheese in your hot pocket. That's the good stuff. So RF, RF vacuum kilns rely upon the lower boiling point, you know, caused by sucking out the air um, to allow that material to, to allow the moisture to flash off with a, um, I don't know what the word is, I guess, less aggressive um, wave form yeah. being a radio you're, you're wave. You as much heat then. Yeah, exactly. So whereas in a microwave, you're not doing that. You're not lowering the flash point. So you could have, I mean, there's so many variables in play that could affect what flashes off and what doesn't. And how big is your microwave? I mean, <laughs> I mean you're limited blanks, by the right? size of what you can put in. Yeah. Small turning blanks is about all you can do. Yeah. And then I question, just turn it green. What's right? It's easier. This um, kind of reminds me of your toast analogy. Shannon. <laughs> yeah. Like sure. this does work, right? If you take a piece of bread and like, there's times I've done this when we want to make French toast and you want to get some of the moisture out of the bread, you can microwave the crap out of it. And then when you take it out and once it cools down, it's almost stale immediately. So you've like really pushed the moisture out of the bread. Um, it's kind of, uh, you know, for wood, it's aggressive and difficult to control, but at no least one wants in terms to use of a knife and fork to eat bread. <laughs> yeah. I do all the time. That's how I eat Snickers bars too. It's a trend that's going around town. Just ask Seinfeld. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess in theory it can work. It's just a matter of, is it a great idea? No. It seems un <laughs> no. It's, too, it's too unpredictable, right? I mean, I guess you can do it, but you got to be careful. Yeah. I mean, certainly a smaller sample size and, you know, fitting in a microwave is pretty small, but turning blanks, man. I mean, if it's a thicker blank, I, I have no idea how you would have any idea, like how you're controlling that moisture. Yeah, what's and then, going on in the middle? Yeah. You know, is the answer just put it in for another minute? I mean, I don't it's know. a lava cake in the middle. So yeah, I Good's think you're going to run some is. cell collapse issues <laughs> and all kinds of other fun stuff. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I got a question here from, uh, Jackson, Jackson from Midland, Michigan. He says, I was wondering if you guys could share your thoughts about which projects sell best. I am 13 and I'm starting an Etsy shop to earn some cash. So far, I have cutting boards, chess sets, and magazine holders. Uh, this is not a question that I had a great answer to, but like when a 13-year-old writes in and asks a question, I want to help this uh, this little little Jackson out. And uh, mm -hmm. I went to Twitter and asked some people who do sell stuff on Etsy and maybe you know locally at fairs and whatever. Uh, and I've got a few answers for you there, Jackson. So. Um, Let's see. We have a person named Vashon Rose says bath trays, coat racks, frames, coasters, and cribbage boards. Mike Jones says a good bird house is my recommendation. Ricardo Silva said uh, wrist rests for computer keyboards for like ergonomic typing. It's a cool idea. And our good buddy, Tom Iovino. Haven't heard from Tom in forever. Remember Tom's tips? Yeah, that's that's the Tom we're and talking Tom, about here. Tom's tips. And Tom's Not lips. talking about Tom's lips. Tom's tips. All right. So Tom Iovino says, I remember building little bookends uh, that had picture frames in them. 
Uh, and that, that actually does sound like something that would sell really well. Uh, aside from that, you know, the, that great selection of things that you could choose from there, Jackson, go to rockler.com slash project dash ideas. And there are tons of inspirational ideas there uh, that you can kind of incorporate to whatever your, your build method is. I don't know what your, your tool set is, um, but you should have plenty of inspiration to find things people would be interested in buying from you in your Etsy store. And also make sure everyone knows that you're 13. Because yeah. that'll help you sell some stuff say. too. <laughs> play that card. Play that card. I play man. it as long as you can. Because uh, by the time you're a full grown man, nobody cares. So <laughs> yeah, once, you, on. once, once you're 18, though, you don't want to do that. That's just creepy. <laughs> it's just the way it is. <laughs> don't, 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 don't ruin it for him, all right? He's got. <laughs> Let him find out like everyone else. <laughs> it's interesting that no one no one brought up boxes. And I, I just wonder, is Etsy so completely inundated with wooden boxes that you just would never stand out? I think other people I did bring out bring up boxes, but I had so many replies and I only picked four. <laughs> so yeah. like, um, if, if I were to recommend one thing, um, anything with candles, like mm-hmm. not not like candle opera type holders, but little like votive holders that mm-hmm. sell like hotcakes. And um, photo albums or scrapbook albums where you can take thinner wood and there's all kinds of, actually, I'm sure Rockler has it. There are hardware kits where you have brass threaded bolts that actually attach the um, the spine together. Mm-hmm. So you get a hardwood front and a hardwood back and you can add in the photo pages or whatever, or scrapbook oh, pages. Nice. Because that's still like, you know, I feel like even though every photo we take is digital now, it's even more of a of a trend towards people like creating scrapbooks and trying to actually display their photos instead of just in some library somewhere and having a really cool hardwood front, very little stock, very easy to make. It sells like crazy. Cool. Good deal. Cool. All right. I guess I'm up, aren't I? Mm-hmm. Um, this is from Ben. He says, I'm about to build a pair of bookshelf speakers from high end kit. And I have some Australian hardwood that I'd like to resaw into quarter inch thick veneers. I've chosen this thickness because it will survive the trip through my planer without being destroyed. So the timber's quarter sawn has been air dried for a number of years. The current thickness is about an inch and a quarter. These veneers will be glued using type bond two to three quarter inch thick MDF. Will this method be stable? And at what thickness does wood stop behaving like solid wood and start behaving like a veneer? So first things, um, you're using quarter sawn veneer or quarter sawn stock. So your wood is going to expand and contract across its thickness, not so much across its width. So knock yourself out, go for it that quarter inch thick material will be just fine. Um, It is going to expand and contract across its width, but most of that tangential movement is through the thickness of the piece because it is quarter sawn. That's why we call quarter sawn material so much more stable. Um, In my experience, I have found that around three eighths of an inch, and again, this will be species dependent, but around three eighths of an inch is when the wheels start to come off and veneer starts acting like solid lumber. And I should be clear, veneer is still lumber. It still acts like (laughs) solid lumber, but because it's so thin, it doesn't really have the force to, to overpower the, the, or excuse me, the substrate is stronger than the veneer. So the substrate and the stability of the substrate in this case, MDF kind of wins the, wins the battle there. And the veneer doesn't really move more importantly, the veneer kind of stretches or well, in this case, it doesn't stretch because the veneer is staying, um, stable, right? Once you get up around three eighths of an inch, the the force of the expanding wood um, that is the veneer kind of starts to win that battle and things start to crack and, and fall apart. 
Certainly massive, like if you're doing an outdoor piece, probably not a good idea. If you're going to have massive like moisture and temperature changes throughout the course of a day, throughout the course of a season, you're going to see more movement there. But um, we've done several uh, veneered uh, timber beams. Uh, we started with quarter inch. We actually went up to three eighths of an inch because we wanted more thickness to allow for sanding and for routed corners and things like that. And it all worked pretty well uh, up up to what well, was actually just a little under three eighths of an inch. The other thing to consider, though, is the type of glue that you're using. He's talking about using tight bond, too, and I don't know that I would recommend that. Um, tight bond does make a cold press veneer glue that's going to be better especially because you're using a thicker veneer. It's going to have a little bit more um, flexibility to it. Um, plus, it's also got just a longer open time. Um, I don't know. He's building bookshelf speakers, so they're not that big. So open time is not really that big of an issue. Um, but really, if you're going to use a thicker veneer, and I'm saying anything thicker than an eighth of an inch, you're better off going with the two-part veneer glue. Um, I personally like UltraCat because it's water-based. As compared to the Unibond stuff, which is resin powder based and really kind of nasty um, from a from a chemical perspective. UltraCat is specifically designed for thicker veneers and it has the flexibility to allow veneer creep. So as that veneer expands and contracts, the glue kind of acts as a buffer, kind of a, a little uh, a little soft buffer that allows it to flex um, over the immobile substrate. Unibond also has a uh, Unibond one, which is a PVA oh, yeah, you're right. formulation. You're right. So if you don't yeah. want to work with like the really nasty stuff, that's, that's have you option. used it? I haven't used that stuff. I have, but it's been a long time. I haven't done veneering okay. in a while. Um, you know, I'm actually a little bit more cautious than, than you are um, with, with the thickness there. I get nervous with a, a quarter inch layer. Um, yeah, but even you have if a drum sander. A, what's that? <laughs> You have a drum sander. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, I, of course, you have to have the ability and luxury, you know, to be able to go thinner than a quarter inch. But I do get nervous at a quarter inch with that thickness, um, especially when MDF is the substrate. But there, there's two sides of this, though. He's putting this into a bookshelf um, speaker. So if there's any warpage or anything, once that thing's glued together, right. it's probably not going anywhere. Uh, but right. And it, how big is the panel itself, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. Um, but there is a... A, a point in this process that I'm going to be a little worried for him is no matter what thickness he uses, once you introduce glue and veneer on one side, and then you, the, the, the time between that glue up and when you actually start to put this thing together into the final shape, you still could get that panel warping if he hasn't balanced it mm. with the veneer on right. the other side. Um, right. it, it can certainly happen. So now you're dealing with beautiful cupped pieces that you're trying to put rabbits into or whatever your joinery is going to be for that box. Um, so I would definitely test this out first. Don't fully commit, uh, test your materials, do a test. Um, you know, I, what did he say? He's vacuum veneering or he didn't say, did he? He didn't No. Okay. What, whatever method you're using for getting this veneer down there, you, you do a test run and then just make sure that those panels remain flat. If you, if you get lucky and everything stays flat, then you're good to go. And if movement happens after the, the, the final glue up, it's probably not going to hurt anything, um, but I don't have faith that he's going to get a quarter inch veneer glued down to an MDF substrate and have that remain flat enough for joinery work afterwards. Yeah, that's, that's just point. my gut feeling on it. I also wonder if using three quarter inch thick for your substrate, because I mean, half inch MDF is readily available. Um, and if you already have a quarter inch veneer, 
And if he is going to use a backer veneer and it, yeah. and it's the same thing and it's a quarter inch there, well, well then, you're up to a one and a quarter inch thick that's piece there. Thick, thick thing. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's like audio sonic reasons why he wants a certain thickness, but I certainly yeah. don't think he wants over an inch. <laughs> that's a little too much. Sure. Ooh. All right. What else? Who's next? Good. All right. It's uh, from Andrew. I've been learning a lot about turning logs into lumber. A lot of the YouTubes that I've watched, they strip the bark off the log before drying because it attracts bugs. Do you strip the bark off before stacking it to dry? If not, why? Uh, so this is kind of run through removing bark from logs for various different reasons, I guess. So uh, I tend to be pretty lazy, so I, I don't really bother with that. But I also have the advantage of living kind of northerly which insect activity isn't as great of a deal than if you're more in the southern area of the U.S. So geographically speaking, that might uh, you know affect why you're removing bark from logs. Um, so I like to keep it on because it tends to help protect the log as it's sitting there in the log yard. Um, if I run into it for whatever reason, you know it's got a cushion there, and as the log is being loaded onto the saw, it also protects the. Uh, the live edge essentially if you're not cutting live edge material it doesn't matter and then you can go crazy and hack it all off if you cut your your trees down in the fall or the winter the bark is going to be rigidly attached but if it's cut um, spring or summer it's going to be looser so you may be able to just peel the whole layer of bark right off of there if it was cut the right time of year otherwise you're going to be hacking away at it uh, another reason people like to remove the bark from the logs before sawing is just to keep the blades from getting full of crap. If there's uh, mm -hmm. rocks or debris in the bark, which it tends to be because those things tend to be like dragged around, um, they'll help to protect your blades and extend your blade life if you don't have a dedicated uh, debarking blade on your saw. Uh, and then at the other side of things, if you're like, I guess if you're actually cutting boards, you're going to cut away the sapwood probably and the live edge and that's where all the any insects that were in there are probably going to be so it, yeah, it depends on like where you want to spend your time you're going to be tossing that in like a chipper or the fire pit anyway so if it's going to be edged material it doesn't i don't think it matters nearly as much but you know you can still remove it if it makes you feel good and again i like to keep it on until it gets into the stack that way the bark protects that live edge because i'm cutting a lot of live edge stuff which the live edge can be very easy to damage, and then it's not like as desirable to have damaged live edge. So if the um, the bark starts falling off while it's in the stack, starts peeling, I'll pull it off just to promote things because that little gap or that little bit of access for insects between the bark and the actual wood uh, can allow them to get in there. Another thing you can do is you can treat the edges with an insecticide, if that's your thing too, to um, allow the bark to stay there. And then you don't have to really worry about it too much. So it's it's kind of like, where do you want to like draw the line of where you want to be, I guess. Mm -hmm. So that's, hopefully that helps. Cool. All right. Matt Noble wrote in, he says, I'm making some wooden puzzles and was wondering what a good finish would be. I've made a few and I finished them with walrus oil, cutting board oil. I really like the look of it and the fact that it's food safe, which makes me feel good about kids playing with the pieces and let's be real, chewing on them. But I'm wondering if that finish will last for years. Ideally, I'd like these puzzles to be heirloom toys. Is there another finish that would give the same look but last longer? Really appreciate you guys and everything y'all do. <clears throat> okay, so for something like this, I kind of like what he's doing. Uh, I think a natural oil 
is a good solution for this because of, you know, how they're being handled. Um, I've had a few like wooden puzzles that I see get handled a lot. And what winds up happening with stuff that gets handled is it actually gets a lot of extra oil added to it <laughs> because people touch it, right? It's hand yeah. oil. It's, it's literally oil from people's skin that was like slowly over time, burnish the wood and it's kind of peanut it butter and, and candy. Like that's true. Sticky bits, a know, coat of yeah. sugar on there. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, it's kind of, um, it gets its own patina over time from this excessive usage that, you almost don't need to do anything to it. Um, I know with my rocking chair is a good example that was finished with a fairly natural oil finish and I haven't done anything to it since, since I finished it years ago, but my son Mateo sits in this thing every day. I don't know why he really seems to like it. He, he sits in it in ways that you wouldn't expect a human being to use this chair, but he still does it. So it constantly has his, his head in all different places, his hands, his arms and his clothes rubbing up against it. And it's weird because it's got this nice shine to it that was never there originally. He's literally burnished the surface. Uh, so this can kind of happen with wooden things that are handled a lot. I think if you went with a film finish, you know, something that you might say, OK, this is much more durable. This should last a lot longer. We'll actually end up with something that doesn't look very good over time because that film is going to get uh, damaged and scratched and, and you're going to be you're going to feel the urge to refinish it at some point. Whereas if you go with the oil finish and maybe it starts looking a little dirty, you can kind of scuff sand it, clean it up a little bit, apply a new coat of oil, and it's good to go. So I think for an heirloom toy, I actually think you are doing the right thing. There's lots of different oils that you could try. Uh, I don't know that I would necessarily use walrus oil specifically because it's a mineral oil-based product, uh, which means that oil never really cures. It just kind of eventually comes off, absorbs, and then you know it, it just kind of looks lackluster. You add more. Um, I would go with a finish that does actually cure, you know, something like boiled linseed oil, pure tongue oil, polymerized oils, walnut oil is an option too. Um, but I like the tried and true polymerized linseed oils. I think those are fantastic. Still just as safe, just as natural. It's just been heat treated. Uh, and, and over time, the natural patina of something that is well used uh, will will make that thing look beautiful over time. Bite marks can help you there. That's, <laughs> that's a whole different level of abuse. Yeah, a little steam and... Comes right out. Right. Nice. Uh, let's see. This is from Jason. Uh, he says, what would you do for rust prevention on holdfasts? Normally, I think paste wax, but is that appropriate for something like a holdfast? Uh, I could wax, varnish, or gun blue, or some combination thereof. Um, Jason, I use paste wax. Specifically, I use Renaissance wax, because that's what I use on all my tools and stuff. But um, it's not going to... If that's causing your holdfast to slip... Uh, I don't know. It was probably already slipping uh, before then because uh, you're not like loading the paste wax on and you want to put it on and then kind of buff it off later. Um, but another thing I've used is just good old fashioned Bowshield T9, um, mm. you know, and apply a heavy coat and let it dry. Um, so it'll be a little tacky when it dries. But then if you just grab a soft cloth and kind of buff it out, you get rid of the tackiness and that will definitely keep the whole fast um, from from getting rusty on you. The other thing is you've got a hold fast that is rusting a lot. Um, hmm. I, I wouldn't want to talk to the blacksmith because all of my good quality hold fasts don't rust. Um, you know, the, I, I don't know enough about blacksmithing to know, but there's kind of that oxidization that the whole hold fast itself is, is much blacker in appearance that, uh, acts as like a natural rust barrier. So something to think about if your hold fast is rusting a lot, 
that might be a problem. Well, there's a reason for the old saying, always blame the blacksmith. Yes. <laughs> always. I said that three times this morning. What? <laughs> I just like to make stuff up as I go. Yeah. Although okay. I think gun blowing would be kind of cool looking. Yeah. I actually think someone just posted this. I didn't read the whole article. I just kind of zoomed past it in um, might have been the Guild Facebook group that they did gun blowing on the Holdfast. They look great, uh, but now they're slipping and they're asking oh, really? for advice really? on on what to do for same, similar, I don't know, maybe it's the same person, but a similar thing to do with uh, how do I protect it from rust? And then now they have a little bit of, of a slippage issue. Pretty sure that's what I read, but who T9 knows? Works great. But I mean, as I said, I've been using paste wax on mine for probably 10 years. Works fine. Well, and I like the idea of T9 because if slippage is a problem for whatever reason, um, the T9 is pretty sticky, nasty stuff. So as long as you buff up the, <laughs> the, the part that sticks above the bench, so it's smooth, um, but let, you know, let the, let the shaft be sticky and gross and, uh, you know, oh maybe it'll gosh. stick better and, and don't, don't read into what I just said. Myself yeah. must say something. Show title, maybe not a show title, maybe too much for a show no, title. Never too uh. much. Okay. Uh, really we're just testing how this whole Rockler thing is going to go down. <laughs> like how much will they, will they take? All right. Oh, sorry. Boy. Yep. Still, okay. still there. Yeah, let's go into uh, Cliff's question. He says, hey, guys, I have a couple of carts in my shop where I use melamine for the surface. I really like using it because glue and other shop messes scrape right off. I'm a hybrid woodworker looking to upgrade my workbench by adding a vice and a vice or two along with some dog holes for when I need to break out the hand tools. I don't think I've seen any workbenches with melamine as top surfaces. Is melamine a viable option for a workbench surface? What would the downside be to using it? I, I sort of like it, but also hate it you know, as an idea, <laughs> right? I, the, like the concept it's, it's of really having, hard to film on. <laughs> yeah, it is. Don't get the white stuff. Uh, I think it's great for like an outfeed table, nice and slippery. It's great for an assembly table, easy to clean all these things you've mentioned, but the other properties of it kind of work against you on a workbench. First of all, workbenches over time, you want to level them, you know? So if you have a, a melamine top, that's really difficult to do and pretty inadvisable. Uh, you also need your workbench to be somewhat grippy. Um, we don't necessarily want our workbenches to be sanded to, you know, 400 grit and then waxed. Uh, you know, a really slippery workbench is one that doesn't grip the work as well as it could. And stuff just kind of can fly off the bench. And how many times are you clamping something directly to the workbench? So if there's no grip there and you're smacking that holdfast down, uh, you can have as strong of a holdfast as you want. But if the wood itself is just on a very slippery, you know, air hockey, slippery kind of surface, uh, you're not going to really get as good uh, work holding there. So I don't think it really makes the greatest workbench surface in spite of the other properties for work holding. Just really not my favorite choice for that. Um, there may be other advantages that I'm not thinking of, but I think the disadvantages are too strong to really consider that as a viable uh, general use workbench surface. I'm not sure how, how durable it really would be in the application. Mm -hmm. Like it's if not. you have things like sliding across it or like corners rubbing against it, scratching it up and like a chisel slip and then you're chipping the melamine top off. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't Dr know. Drilling I, into it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, if you guys remember that, that, that workbench episode, that was what I started with. Like I had a row of cabinets with a melamine top on it mm -hmm. and I eventually replaced it with two by, you know, construction material because what Mark said, it was super slippery. Even with that Craig surface clamp, things would just like shift around from side to side. 
um, all the time. And I was always dinging the surface up with chisels and planes. And Mm -hmm. you could make a case that that hard surface might dull your blades, but you know, I mean, it's not like I was doing it all that much, but it looked really ratty after about six months of working on it as an actual like hand tool workbench. It was so dinged up. And, and especially if you're using the white melamine, this was actually a grayer colored laminate that I put over top of it. But the white stuff would would, would immediately just show all the little nicks and dings you had on it. Mm-hmm. I think for, I, I do have a project coming up for an outfeed table slash assembly table. And that may be, or something like melamine, something with a, you know, a plastic laminate sort of top on it is probably going to be my material of choice for that because it just, it's, that's where all the messes happen. That's where the glue squeeze out goes. That's where wood pieces are sliding across and I want them to slide across, right? That's that to me, it's a perfect material for, for that solution. If, if you, you make it about using like a, a sheet of like HDPE, cause then right. it'd be even more durable. You don't have to worry about like denting it. I'm denting it, like chipping it, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got a couple of samples from Austin hardwoods um, at one point where they got this new material in that just kind of had, it, and it was black too. Like it was a dark color. So, which that's right up my alley. I don't want that really white stuff. <laughs> I like um, things dark. I do. Yeah. So, but it had a thinner <laughs> layer of that. I don't even know exactly what it was, but when you touch it, it definitely feels more of that HDPE sort of softness to it. Mm-hmm. Is, is softness the right word? It definitely feels softer uh, than a sheet of melamine would. And I'm like, that's, yeah. that's a potential material that I should consider for something like this. Yeah. Like you have a lot of projects you've been talking about doing. Got a lot of balls in the air. <laughs> Just got a lot of balls. That's it. <laughs> got a lot of balls in the air. <laughs> yeah. I got a lot, a lot to do. Good thing I hired someone to, uh, help me get those things done. Yeah. It's important. All right. This one's from Nigel. He says, I was wondering whether as, um, you only use hand tools, do you still, this is kind of directly to me, by the way, <laughs> as you only use hand tools, do you still have any use for a sander? I enjoy the hybrid approach that Mark does again, cause he invented it, I did. but I'm <laughs> trying to get into hand planing more for an enjoyment and health point of view instead of sanding. I'm in a dilemma with whether I should get a small random orbit sander. I don't have one or rather keep that money and put it towards getting better planes instead. If I can move uh, and if I can move away completely from sanding. So uh, if you don't have a random orbital sander at all, I would get one. Um, Yes, I can prep a project entirely using nothing but hand planes, but it took me a while to get to that. And there are still moments when like, if it's a really odd inside curve or a particularly um, unusual profile or something like that, Sometimes it's just easier to blend surfaces together with good old fashioned sandpaper. Now I tend to, when I do use sandpaper these days, it's more of just hand sanding with, you know, a block of wood and sandpaper. Um, but I still do have a random orbital sander. It's not actually in my shop. It's, um, on the other side of the house and kind of the house repair type stuff, but it's nice to know that it's there, um, that I can pull back and, and do that. And there's certainly, no disgrace in using a sander. I think what a lot of people use planes in this environment is you do a lot less sanding. If you can hand plane your surface, then you can skip like the, the really nasty grits, the 60, 80 grit, hundred grit, and maybe even pick up a 220 grit. Um, and, and that's all you do is just 220 grit and, and, and you're done. So I would, I would have a hard time suggesting somebody just skip sanding altogether. It sounds like he already has planes, so keep working on your hand planing skills, but keep that sander in 
in your back pocket. Sorry. <laughs> I have no idea what just happened. I had to well, pee so well, bad. I think we're waiting on you to read the uh, the ending thing now. Okay. I, I hope this oh. was a great show at the end here, but I had to pee so bad. <laughs> Shannon was talking and I'm like, all right, I'm either going to make a thing of this on the show. minutes at least. Yeah. And I'm going to be like, all right, guys, I got to go pee really bad. Or I could just go and Shannon will still be talking when I get back. I guess I mistimed it. Nope. Nope. <laughs> I really God, I had to go so bad. My problem like, is, is I'm the one who always has the technical issue. So I just figured that you guys like I'd been dropped from the call or something. I'm like, oh, crap. I'm checking um, all my settings. And then Matt's like, <laughs> well, hopefully that's a great podcast for people to listen to. Uh, yeah, that's how it goes. That'll give, makes that'll give you time to, you know, to yell at your at your car stereo when you're listening. Yeah, when, when you got to go, you got to go, guys. Sorry, it's a it's a new feature. It's the Wood Talk Zen Break. Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope Nigel had a great answer. I'll listen to the show and find out. Uh, so that just about does it for us. Remember that we are proudly sponsored by Rockler. Rockler is a family-owned business since 1954. They're your go-to source for high-quality and innovative woodworking tools, finishing supplies, hardware, lumber, and expert advice. Whether you're building a simple bookshelf, a custom desk, or new kitchen cabinets, Rockler has everything you need to make your next project a success. Visit rockler.com and use the code WOODTALK, all one word, to receive free shipping on most orders over 39 bucks. As we've said, we're going to try to do these Q&A shows as part of the kind of normal monthly roundup. So please do send in your questions. We will do our best to get to them. You can send those to woodtalkshow.com. Go to the website. There's a contact form there. Or you can email us questions. We love those voicemails. They're fun to make fun of. So um, record (laughs) your voicemail on a voice memo. Send it to woodtalkshow at gmail.com. Of course, you can also find us on all the socials. We are at woodtalkshow everywhere you want to be. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, where you don't want to be. But you don't want to be on TikTok. Nope. No. no. On TikTok, TikTok anymore. TikTok bad. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for listening, everyone. And may all of your shafts be sticky. <laughs> too much? Uh, too, too soon? <laughs> too, too, yeah, that's the issue. Too soon. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Goodbye, everybody. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.